Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast, where healthcare meets business, with your host, me, Dr. Karen Litzy. And just as a reminder, the information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and is not to be used as personalized medical advice. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast. I am your host, Dr. Karen Litzy, and today we're talking about something near and dear to my heart, gluteal tendinopathy, because I did suffer from that a couple of years ago. So we've got one of the world's experts on to talk about this subject, Dr. Allison Grimaldi. Now, if you don't know, Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart is also on YouTube. This is one to go and watch on YouTube because she pulls out a model of the pelvis and gives us some um, anatomical points to look at. So head over to YouTube and you can just put in Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart or put in Karen Litzy and you can go to the YouTube channel to watch this podcast. A little bit more about Dr. Grimaldi. She is an Australian sports physiotherapist and the practice principal of Physiotech Physiotherapy in Brisbane, Australia, with over 30 years of clinical experience and a special interest in the management of hip, groin, and pelvic pain. She has a Bachelor of Physiotherapy, Master's of Sports Physiotherapy, and a PhD through the University of Queensland, Australia. Allison was a key investigator on the multi-center LEAP randomized clinical trial comparing the effects of treatment for gluteal tendinopathy. She has an involvement in research for over 20 years and continues her research interests as an adjunct senior research fellow at the University of Queensland and in collaborative international research. She has contributed to three leading clinical texts, conducted over 100 clinical workshops worldwide, and presented over 50 keynotes, invited or podium conference presentation. She also runs a HIP Academy with online learning and live mentoring at DrAllisonGrimaldi.com. And for all of you listening, she is offering a 15% discount on HIP Academy joining for Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast listeners. You can use the code HWS2023. So again, you can go to DrAllisonGrimaldi.com for that, or you can go to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com, and we'll have everything there one click away. So a big thank you to Dr. Allison Grimaldi, and everyone enjoy today's episode. Hi, Allison. Welcome to the podcast. It's such an honor to have you on. So thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me, Karen. It's great to be here with you today. Yes. And soon in a couple of months, you'll be here in New York City. We'll get to that a little bit later in the podcast. So if people are in the United States and they want to see you in person, we'll talk about when you're going to be uh, here in New York City with uh, two workshops. So it's really exciting. But before we, people have to wait for that good stuff. But before we get to that, I'm really excited today to talk about gluteal tendinopathy, near and dear to me as I suffered from that. I think it was not last year, but the year before maybe. Yeah. I think it might've been the year before and boy, oh boy, is that uncomfortably painful. So let's start with definitions. What is a gluteal tendinopathy? Well, tendinopathy in general just refers to persistent tendon pain and loss of function related to some sort of mechanical loading. So gluteal tendinopathy is about 
painful gluteal tendons and that's generally the gluteus medius and or minimus tendons so it can be either of those and yeah related to loss of function which is usually around single leg weight bearing tasks like walking stair climbing standing on one leg to dress and of course it's very tender um, to touch uh, these tendons and so when you lie on your side it tends to be painful so that's generally how we see the presentation of, of gluteal tendinopathy and here's of course the the loaded question is what causes it <laughs> uh well Previously, it's been referred to as trichanteric bursitis, and back then it was thought to be an inflammatory condition of the trichanteric bursa. Uh, that hasn't really panned out to be, um, you know, the case, or particularly not the whole case. We rarely see a change in the tendon with without, sorry, changing the bursa without changing the tendon. So it's actually very rare to have isolated trichanteric bursitis. And so the predominant issue seems to be in the tendon. So why does this tendon become painful? The condition seems to be more a degenerative condition rather than, um, you know, an acute inflammatory condition. And, but usually when the pain comes out, it's related to some sort of change in mechanical load. And so that might be a slip or a fall, or it might be that someone's increased their activity levels. And we see this very commonly in um, perimenopause or postmenopausal women that might have increased their activity levels to you know, deal with weight gain and things like that. And so that rapid increase in activity level uh, can you know, really affect those tendons and the tendons become painful. That can also happen with younger people, um, particularly with things like running, you know, suddenly increasing running distance or hill running, things that are more challenging uh, for the glutes and those tendons. And sometimes it can just be that there hasn't been a really significant shift in load, but just over time, the person might be becoming weaker and weaker um, from sedentary activities or some sort of other injury or illness that's not been allowing them to load their tendons normally. And then those tendons reduce the capacity for load so far that even the normal activities of daily living will represent overload, if you like, mm. and then pain will come out. So they're the most common scenarios we see. And how prevalent is it? So um, most common in postmenopausal women. And so and there it's really highly prevalent. So around one in four women will suffer with gluteal tendinopathy in that uh, peri-postmenopausal period. It does occur in males as well, but in that same age group, usually only about one in 11 uh, males. We don't have uh, the stats, if you like, in younger groups, mm -hmm. but as I mentioned, we, we do see it in younger runners, um, people involved in maybe going to the gym and doing, you know, step type classes, things like that, particularly if they're unaccustomed to it and then suddenly join step classes and start doing a lot more activity. And we do see it a bit in clinic, like with uh, females, particularly after having babies, um, because in that sort of postpartum period, often there's a bit of a, you know, lack of a, a reduction in capacity. And then in the effort to, you know, 
back the pre-baby body, mm-hmm. uh, increase that activity level and perhaps, you know, not having good enough control around their pelvis and then they might develop the condition at that stage as well. Yeah, that all makes perfect sense. And I'm nodding because I'm like, mm-hmm, yep, that that was me. Um, so let's talk about what kind of impact it has on people's lives. So before, I mean, I had a diagnosis of gluteal tendinopathy, um, like I said, about two years ago. And I could tell you the impact it had on my life. I couldn't stand for more than four or five minutes. And so I'm a physical therapist. I see patients in their home. So I have to walk. I could walk quickly. That was much more comfortable. And you can explain why that, why that is, um, walking slowly or what I call like museum walking, you know, when you're sort of meandering out of the question, um, and going up and down subway steps, horrible. I mean, it was, it affected everything I did every single day. You know, unless I was laying down, even sitting, <laughs> and not, and even sitting and not lying on my side, <laughs> laying on my back or lying on my left side, like even sitting in certain chairs was not comfortable. Mm. Um, so that was my experience. Um, so what have you seen in the people that you treat in clinic? What it kind of impact does it have on their lives? So it can have really substantial impacts. Actually, Angie Fearon's work showed that the impact on quality of life is equal to that of people with advanced hip osteoarthritis. So it is a really impactful. Mm -hmm. The biggest impacts seem to be on sleep and on physical activity related to standing and moving. And, you know, as you mentioned, uh, walking is often painful or or sustained standing and particularly the position that you're standing in can have a big impact in terms of uh, where you're loading the tendons. So um, positions where you're, you know, maybe sliding to the side a little bit or even just translating the pelvis forward a bit will also sort of load the more anterior aspects of those tendons. Uh, but the meandering versus faster walking, again, it depends how you're walking, but um, faster walking, you might have gone to perhaps a shorter stride length, more like a scurry. Mm-hmm. And I'll often say that to my patients, if you're in a hurry, scurry, don't stride uh, because long strides, that sort of long strides, you tend to get higher impact forces when your heel hits the ground, which impacts back up at the hip. But also if you've got those lower, uh, longer, you know, slower strides, if you like, your pelvis tends to have more time to translate laterally and dip down. And we know that that lateral translation and lateral tilting really increases the compression of the tendons at the side of the hip. So if we think about the iliotibial band coming from the pelvis and running down the side of the hip there over the greater trochanter, we have our gluteus, medius and minimus tendons joining into the side of the greater trochanter there. So they don't just join into the top, they join over the outer side of the greater trochanter. So when the pelvis um, shifts or drops into a position of adduction, adduction, then we get this wrapping around of the ITB around the greater trochanter. And that, um, you know, causes compression and compression is in itself isn't dangerous. But if you've got a painful tendon um, and you're compressing it, that tends to 
make it more painful. And potentially compression is one of the factors that can contribute to the development um, of gluteal tendinopathy, but if it's often a multifactorial situation. Mm-hmm. But that's why uh, walking and standing on one leg, and particularly if you're weak in the hip abductors, then we see people tending to shift, you know, shift their pelvis and drop into that position of compression. Sitting can be problematic because particularly if you're sitting with knees crossed, Again, I say to my patients, anywhere where your knees are, you know, towards the midline or across your body, or if you're standing, if your hip is out to the side, mm-hmm. those sort of positions both wind up that iliotibial band and can make the tendon grumpy. So we don't want to make people, you know, crazily fearful about, you know, positions and postures and things like that. But it's a cumulative thing. And actually, we find patients find this really empowering because if they can understand what things irritate the condition, um, then they've got great power over altering that and, and getting this thing under control. So in sitting legs crossed, again, that's sort of winding up those tendons and often in deeper chairs as well. So sometimes sitting in a car or a deep lounge, mm-hmm. particularly with knees crossed. Uh, but even in deep lounges, probably that has to do with the fact that the iliotibial band joins into the gluteal fascia and up into the thoracodorsal fascia. And so higher hip flexion will, you know, wind up all mm-hmm. that. And so that potentially increases that compressive load as well. Yeah. So those are the the typical things that we see people struggling with and those have big impacts. Yep. yep. And I will also add going to a theater, going to the opera, those seats that kind of fold down and kind of, and you know, you know, the ones I mean, like this. Yeah. So painful. Mm. Like Mm. can't even, I remember going to the opera and I think I lasted for like mm, until, I don't even know if I made it to first intermission. I was like, I got to go. Yeah. I couldn't, I just couldn't sit any longer. Yeah. Yeah, That's right. That can be a real problem because those uh, seats again tend to slope backwards to back. So we encourage our patients, you know, during that painful period to take a wedge cushion with them. Um, Or some of the theatres actually have cushions that are available like for for children. Uh, I'm not sure, like outside the doors, sometimes Mm -hmm. there's a whole stack of cushions. So just grab one of those. Stick them under your bottom. Right. So you're a little higher. Mm. Right. Oh, that makes perfect sense. And now I think we've covered a little bit, but if you want to synthesize this down, how would a physical therapist or doctor recognize a gluteal tendinopathy? I think we covered a lot of it, but if you want to sort of give it the, the, I don't want to say bullet point, because I don't think that's quite, quite what we're looking for, but a condensed version. Yeah, great. Well, it's probably good to look at it in terms of, patient interview features and physical exam features. So in the patient interview, you're looking for patients who report pain right over that greater trochanter. So we're looking for lateral hip pain over the greater trochanter. They might also have pain that extends down the lateral thigh. And sometimes it does even go just below the knee into the upper shin. And probably because some of that pain might be related to some change we also see in the iliotibial band. So we might actually have an associated ITB fasciopathy, if you like. Uh, so that's quite common. But the pain over the greater trochanter is really important because we see so many people being diagnosed on imaging, even though their pain might be 
you know, somewhere near, you know, their sacroiliac joint or the front of their hip. That's not a clinical presentation of gluteal tendinopathy. Uh, so patient interview, area of pain is really important. And then the, the aggravating factors give you really good clues uh, in that patient interview. So I have a lot of trouble, you know, sleeping at night, but then we need to ask a little bit more questions about that. Um, what position is painful and where exactly is it painful? So um, sleeping on my side, okay, so that might be tendon, might also be joint. So you want to tease that out and is it pain directly over that bone or more general ache somewhere in your hip? Okay, so we're looking for pain, tenderness over that bone when you lie on your side. And that pain can be lying on either side because even when they're lying on their unaffected hip, if the top knee is hanging down, it's still compression. It tends mm -hmm. to so those are big things. And then it's uh, everyday things that we've already talked about. So mm -hmm. single leg standing tasks. So standing to dress, stair climbing is a big one, walking, particularly up hills um, or uneven surfaces as well. So those are the, the key patient interview features. And so then we've already got this thought in our mind, well, this patient might have gluteal tendinopathy, uh, go into the physical exam. So one of the first things that you might do in terms of you know, specific tests for gluteal tendinopathy is just get them to stand on one leg. So uh, as part of the LEAP trial, we had a look at uh, which um, clinical tests might be most useful in the diagnosis of gluteal tendinopathy and the sustained single leg stance test showed to be you know one of the most useful tests so that's basically getting the patient to stand on one leg their side onto a wall and they put just one finger against the wall just for some balance so we're not testing mm -hmm. balance um, and then they're standing there for up to 30 seconds. So if they're painful in the first five seconds, of course, you don't need to get them to stand there in pain. You don't have to torture them for the next 25. Yep, that's right. The, the test is positive and it's, it's um, yeah, that's the end of the test. But some people, it might take them like the milder presentations. It might be 10 or 15 seconds until mm -hmm. they get that pain. So you might miss them if you just get them to stand on one leg for a few seconds. Uh, so we want to do that sustained, you know, hold and see what happens with that sustained loading on the tendon. Uh, then uh, tests on the bed that we generally use. Uh, uh, it, we use the hip flexion adduction external rotation test that we used in the, the LEAP trial, and that is effectively hip flexion 90 degrees, full adduction of the hip, and then full external rotation. So we're winding up the hip into a uh, position where we've got those tendons passively you know, compressed around the greater trochanter. But the test is even more useful if you then add an active element. So in that position, we get the patient to resist against a further external rotation force. So they're doing isometric internal rotation. Mm -hmm. And so adding that compression to the active uh, tensile load seems to be most useful in getting a positive there. And some listeners might be thinking, oh, why are you doing internal rotation? Aren't the, aren't, isn't the glute med an external rotator? Uh, but all of the portions of glute med and glute min at 90 degrees of hip flexion are actually internal rotators now. Okay, so we're loading all of those portions in that position. So we use the fader test. Uh, the other test that can be useful is um, a test of 
adduction and that is in side lying. So effectively the modified Ober's test. So mm-hmm. put the side lying diagonally across the bed, lower that straight leg right down into end range adduction. Again, we do a two-part test. Uh, we do that passive um, passive provocation first, just pushing them into that end range. Need to make sure we stabilize the pelvis there. So we're getting that iliotibial band sort of wrapping over the greater trochanter. Is it painful there? But again, we found it was most useful if we added an active component. So in that position, we get them to resist a further adducting force. So they are doing an isometric abduction. And again, the, the, uh, the compression and the active load tends to make the, the test more useful. We also, also usually look at Faber test, mm-hmm. um, so flexion, abduction, external rotation, also referred to as Patrick's test. That test um, in our assessment showed to be one of the least useful, but mm-hmm. Angie Ferrell's work showed that it was useful in differentiating between um, arthritis and gluteal tendinopathy because if mm-hmm. we've got isolated gluteal tenopathy, we don't see as much, you know, change in range uh, right. in, the, in that Faber test. And then, of course, the cardinal sign perhaps is tenderness on palpation of the greater trochanter. Right. So we want them to be tender on palpation, but it's important to realise, though, that that test is more useful for ruling out gluteal tendinopathy than for ruling in gluteal tendinopathy. And all that means is that a lot of people are a bit tender tender on their greater trochanter. Right. It doesn't necessarily mean they definitely have gluteal tendinopathy. Um, but if they're completely non-tender, you probably need to be considering other diagnoses. So mm-hmm. it's the combination of the palpation and the other physical tests um, that will help us get the best likelihood of a a um, true diagnosis. Right. And, and is it, if one test out of that group is positive, two tests is if there's no tenderness and one test is positive, what, what, what are we thinking then? Sure. So for the LEAP trial, for uh, getting people into the trial as a clinical screening, we used uh, a clinical diagnosis that was a positive palpation. So they must be tender on the greater trochanter and at least one positive test in the other physical tests. Mm-hmm. In clinical practice, I think you'd find that it's quite quick um, to do the test battery. Mm-hmm. And I think you'd find that the more positive tests, you might be you know, more confident in your diagnosis. Right. right. Yeah. I remember when you're saying like the palpation, like for me, it wasn't like, mm, I don't know, it might be a little tender. I was just like, <gasps> yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. It. So- so some studies call it the jump sign. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I, never do that again. <laughs> that's right. And I call it the the eyes widening yeah, sign. Yeah. So when you're doing these tests on patients, you're always watching their face. And often you'll see these eyes widening. You go, yeah, that's positive. <laughs> there it is. That's where I'm like, is. okay, that's it. All right. <laughs> moving on. <laughs> because it is true. Like some people around the greater trochanter and, and other parts of the body, like some people just don't like someone poking them. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. You know? So, but there's a difference between that. And like you said, the eye is wide open and the, you know, the, yeah. the sharp inhalation of breath <laughs> and the like, oh my God, never do that to me again. Are you a crazy person? Look, you know? <laughs> That's the one. Yeah. That's that's the look we're going for. Okay. Yeah. So now let's move on to 
management. So what does the evidence suggest as a good kind of first line management for gluteal tendinopathy? Because oftentimes it does fall to a physical therapist. Um, they may come to us first. So what are we, what are we thinking for first line management? Mm-hmm. Well, it's great if they actually do see a physical therapist first, because then they're actually much more likely to get uh, best first line management, uh, which the evidence suggests is an education and exercise program. A lot of people do still present to their general practitioner, their general medical practitioner as their first port of call. And first line management in the medical um, communities are generally some sort of injection. Um, so here it's most commonly a, a cortisone injection or you know it might be something like a, a PRP injection. But uh, generally injection is um, seen as the the first thing that is provided because perhaps it'll give them that that quick pain relief and it'll mm-hmm. take too long for um, physical therapy interventions to provide that effect. But the evidence from the LEAP trial was great because it's something that we can go back to our referring practitioners with and say, well, actually, the education and exercise program showed to be more effective than cortisone uh, in both the short term and the long term. So prior to the LEAP trial, the only study that had had some uh, exercise component didn't really show a useful effect until 15 months down the down the road. And so you can see why practitioner general practitioners might be going, right, well, we have to give you some relief in the meantime. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, we've we've shown that education and exercise can give a really great outcome early um, as well as uh, in the longer term. And so that's what the evidence currently um, suggests should be first line management. And why not do both? Like why not do education and exercise plus a cortisone shot or plus a PRP shot? Mm-hmm. So good question. And it's a question that I often get asked when I'm speaking to, um, you know, medical professionals, well, you know, we can just do both. And often we'll get referrals from doctors who will do the injection first and then send them to physio. So why not both? Well, firstly, I suppose um, adding an inferior intervention to a superior intervention is unlikely to improve your outcomes. So we were getting uh, on the LEAP trial, the uh, success rate was uh, around 80%. So we're unlikely to improve that uh, with uh, cortisone. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other negatives, well, there's not evidence for gluteal tendinopathy, but for um, other similar tendinopathies, for example, lateral elbow tendinopathy. Mm -hmm. Um, Brooke Coombe and Bill Vicenzino's work showing showed that adding the two together actually slowed down the success rate yep. and reduced the success rate over time. So actually they did, you know, not as well uh, when they combined the two together. What are the reasons for that? Well, we know that cortisone has an effect on actually dampening down tenocyte activity. And with our exercise therapy, often what we're trying to do is is create some response from those tenocytes. Um, So maybe that's one um, effect. The other effect that I think we see quite a lot in clinical practice, and also it was interesting in the LEAP trial to see what happened 
uh, in activity levels in the three groups. So we had three groups, one that did education exercise, one that had a, a single cortisone injection, and one that was a wait and see group. The uh-huh. wait and see group and the cortisone injection group were both also given a, a basic pamphlet that told them, you know, some basic education about the condition, no specific load management, but information that reassured them and said, look, it's best in the short term to reduce your activities levels a little bit, let it settle, and then just gradually increase your activity rather than spikes of activity. So they both got that um, basic piece of information in that handout. Interestingly, looking at the traces of activity level over time, in that first four weeks uh, after they were given that advice, Mm -hmm. the education and exercise group and the uh, wait and see group, they both reduced their activity for that first uh, four to eight weeks. And then we saw this gradual increase in activity levels again. Uh, The cortisone group from baseline to that uh, first four to eight weeks, they actually increased their activity level. And then then we saw a drop in activity and it stayed dropped Mm. over time. Now, there, there weren't significantly, like in terms of um, statistical significance, they weren't significantly different, but it is something that mirrors what we see in clinical practice. If someone gets given an injection that they get immediate pain relief from, they're much less likely to adhere to load management advice and they're much less likely to adhere to an exercise program. Not that they are bad patients, but it's just that, you know, if you don't like pain's a good motivator. Um, Always, yeah. Yeah, if you have that instantaneous pain relief, then, you know, people are busy. They get on with their lives Mm -hmm. and they're less likely to, you know, do what they really need to do to make sure they fix this thing for the longer term. And that's why again and again, we see with studies on cortisone that we get this short-term fix, but long-term, you know, it tends to recur. Uh And we did see this and we see it in clinical practice that, um, yeah, they might be good for a while, um, but then it recurs. And unfortunately, then patients are often then back to the doctor looking for, you know, a second injection and a third injection, Yeah, which, you know, and we know that cortisone can have very adverse effects on soft tissue health. And so the more of those injections they have, the less healthy those tissues become. And then it becomes harder, perhaps, for education and exercise to then mm-hmm. have as much of an effect. So for me, I tell my referrers, please don't please don't help by giving a cortisone injection. You know, I would rather just see them with no injections um, and we can make a big difference to pain very quickly uh, with those load management uh, techniques that we can uh, provide. Yeah, and, you know, as you're speaking about the LEAP trial, uh, like you said, a big part of it was education and exercise. Can you share what some of the, what that education and exercise looked like for the people in the trial? Sure. And I think it's really important to understand the details of load management programs that are provided because, um a lot of the time load management is just thought to be just reducing activity and then increasing it again. And certainly that is an important part of it, um, controlling overload and gradually increasing uh, load over time, uh, giving the tendons time to sort of adapt. 
but we also provided very specific advice about reducing uh, potentially provocative positions and tasks uh, that would irritate people. And so these are things that we've already um, talked about. Mm -hmm. so, uh, standing. So for example, standing, hanging on the hip. So slouching onto one side where you're sort of hanging on that iliotibial band. So we encourage people to do less of that. Um, so reduce, you know, time spent hanging, reduce time in sitting spent with your knees crossed. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, perhaps, you know, avoid low chairs as much or don't sit in low chairs as much. Get your bottom a little bit higher if you can. So those are really important elements. Nighttime is incredibly important. These patients experience significant um, sleep disturbance. And so if we can help them with getting a better sleep, everything feels better. Pain levels tend to reduce. Uh, they feel much better in themselves. And so, it's important, I think, to one, explain the things that they can do. But if you can actually get them on the bed and go through pillow positioning, mm -hmm. it makes a big difference because I find that if you just tell people something, they'll come back and they'll go, oh, that didn't work. And then go, right, let's go through it. And you put them on the bed and they weren't doing anything like uh, what you'd actually yeah. you know, describe to them. And so the big things about nighttime are, you know, spending less time lying on the affected side. And so if they can sleep, you know, on their back, but a lot of people will say, I can't sleep on my back. But sometimes you can make it more comfortable on their back by putting a pillow under their knees and mm -hmm. just relaxing that lower back a little bit or just slightly shimming into like a quarter turn position either way. Um, or if they lie on their unaffected side, but then we really have to uh, control what's happening with that top leg. Mm -hmm. yeah. So people say, I've tried a pillow between my legs, but what they might have tried is actually just a little cushion and just between the knees. So the pillow has to be a fairly fat pillow mm -hmm. and it needs to be right from the knees and down along the shins to between the ankles because we also want to control that external rotation. Right. Yeah, or often I find that one of the most comfortable positions is actually that quarter turn position. So, uh, or if you like halfway between lying on their side and lying on mm -hmm. their tummy. So in even lying on their affected side can sometimes be most useful. So they lie on their affected side, straighten out that bottom leg, and then they roll their body halfway towards their tummy so that they're no longer lying on the greater trichana. They're actually weight-bearing on the anterolateral thigh. Uh, and then the other leg is sort of just bent in front. Mm -hmm. But for people to sustain that, they usually are much better if you get them to wedge a pillow underneath yeah. top thigh and their top pillow. And some of them might even need a second pillow to rest their arm on. Or yeah, a or a, a body pillow. Yeah. yeah, something like that. But that sort of halfway between side lie and prone is mm -hmm. often one of the most successful positions. Just make sure with that top leg, it's not right up, you know, near the chest. So it needs right. to be below the 90 degrees. And then the other thing for sleeping is just um, also an eggshell mattress overlay can be really useful because people can't completely control what they do in the nighttime. And if yep. they do end up on that side, they won't wake up quite as quickly, uh, usually if they have one of those uh, eggshell or waffle sort of uh, overlays on mm -hmm. their bed. Mm -hmm. So those things are really important. And then I think the other 
important feature of load management is movement training. And so training people around those gate parameters we've already talked about, but simple things like getting in and out of the chair, doing that without having your knees together. So mm -hmm. have some space between your knees as you get in and out of the chair and then going upstairs because that's a really um, another really big uh, feature. So using a rail can be helpful, of course, on the side opposite the painful hip but just even where they place their feet. So often when people are weak in their hip abductors, when they go to stand on one leg to lift the other leg to the next step, the pelvis drops and shifts. And so then they end up putting their foot almost directly in front of their pubic symphysis. Mm -hmm. And then they are already adducted as they go to try to transfer their weight up the, up the stairs. And that can create quite sharp pain for some people. Sure. So even just thinking, you know, feet wide, you know, yeah. when you walk up the stairs, you know, pretend you're a cowboy. <laughs> it doesn't have to be quite that wide, but, you know, just separate those feet and try to minimize the whole side shifting thing. We don't expect right. people to be rigid in their pelvis, but, you know, think of your legs moving underneath your pelvis rather than your pelvis sort of swinging side to side. Uh, so those things, you know, are very important. So I think those those components, so the the overall load management activity-wise, mm -hmm. positional load management and uh, movement training, I think those are three really key components of load management. And, you know, that's obviously a lot of patient education. You don't have to do all of it in the first visit. Mm -hmm. I, I would venture to say you'll lose people. Hmm. Right. Yeah. So that's where it comes into trying to hone into what is this person's or mm -hmm. what are the, what is this individual's major problems, if you like. So what are they having problems with? So patient-specific function. And interestingly, we just published a paper on uh, mediators of the effect of the education and exercise program, and patient-specific function was one of the things that showed to be uh, significant. So if we could improve patient significant function, that seemed to be one of the things that helped mediate the positive effects of the intervention. And so if their big things are, I can't sleep and I can't walk up my stairs. So, you know, focus on those things right. initially, because if you change those things that are their specific problems, you're most likely to have, you know, the quickest effect. Right. Yeah. Cause come, someone can come in and be like, I sleep fine. Yeah. Exactly. I so just, I, I can't walk and it's hard going upstairs. Okay. Well, yeah. let's see what we can do about that. Yeah. So, okay. so what you're saying is listen to the patient, keep listening to the patient and tailor the program and not have like a cookie cutter situation. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That makes perfect sense. And what about exercise wise? Is there one exercise that's like the savior of all exercises. We used to joke that like the Nordic hamstring fixes everything, right? So yes. um, that's a joke, by the way. I don't want, yeah, don't, yeah. don't at me on social media and say, <laughs> how could you say that? It's a joke, but go now, ahead. Isn't it all, it's, it's only isometrics, isn't it? No, yeah, I, think, yeah. I think we've moved past that now. <laughs> only isometrics. Yeah, I don't believe there's one specific exercise. Although there's probably one specific exercise that I'd say don't do, um, and that's usually the clam, uh, mainly because of 
you know, the the action of the clam, when, if you've got gluteal tendinopathy specifically, if you're lifting that knee up and down and sort of rubbing that iliotibial band over the greater trochanter, uh, that tends to be quite uh, provocative for these tendons. And it's also not uh, arguably uh, the best exercise to target the muscles that we're trying to target and the portions mm-hmm. of muscles we're trying to target. So my preference is for strengthening, get weight bearing, get get closed chain. And so in the LEAP trial, we did progressions of bridging. So with mm-hmm. feet on the ground, you know, activating those glutes and progressing from double leg to offset to single leg bridge. Uh, but functional training, I think, is really important. So standing and doing standing squats, and then we go to offset squats. We go to a single leg stance or a single leg squat, uh, stepping up a step. And I think these sorts of exercises have a couple of really important purposes. Well, maybe more. Uh maybe strengthening um, although we showed again with the media the mediators that it wasn't changes in strength that actually mediated um, the effects that we had uh, perhaps what we're doing is improving motor control um, mm-hmm. improving the way, and, and sometimes in social media sometimes motor control is a dirty word uh, but we're talking about optimizing loading across the tendons that's what mm-hmm. we're trying to do and so if we can uh, alter someone's gait and uh, and alter someone's stair climbing habits, and we know from Kim Allison's PhD research that people with this condition move in ways that actually excessively load these tendons. So if we can train them to move in ways that reduces that, that tendon load, that can often have a, a very quick effect you know, on pain and on function. But the other thing I think with functional exercises is that we are probably improving the patient's confidence uh, to do these things and reducing fear around Mm -hmm. that. And again, that was one of the other mediators that we showed uh, that was really important. If we improved patients' pain self-efficacy, that was one of the things that improved um, or that actually created the effect, the positive effect. And so I think that education is important there, but also just doing something that might be scary for the patient, like going up a step, but doing it supervised uh, with a health professional and having them teach you how to do that without actually getting that sharp pain at the side mm-hmm. of the head. Um, that really improves their confidence. They go, oh, I can do those stairs now. So I think, you know, those elements are very important. Uh, And then the other main exercises that we did, we did do isometrics. And uh, those isometrics were low load isometrics in supine with a belt around the knees, Mm -hmm. abducted. And then we also did a standing version of that. Uh, Again, hips a bit abducted. These are just slow, gentle isometrics without the TFL activating and Again, probably, you know, we might have had an effect just from, you know, some people do get pain relief from isometrics. Uh, Also, we used it as a recruitment retraining um, Mm -hmm. activity. And again, Kim Allison's other research showed that recruitment of these muscles is um, different in patients with gluteal tendinopathy. And so we did those isometrics. And in, in my own clinical practice, I find that patients a lot of patients find that those are helpful for pain, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Initially, when patients would give me that feedback, I'd go, oh, yeah, well, that's all, <laughs> a little bit crazy. 
But then we had all the evidence come out about isometrics and it is certainly not a cure-all, but for some people it really helps. Mm-hmm. And then from a pure strength perspective or tendon loading perspective, the exercise that we did was a frontal plane exercise. So when they were doing it in the clinic, they did it on a Pilates reformer or a spring-resisted slider. So it's purely standing hip abduction, pushing the legs apart. So just pure frontal plane loading. Uh. I hate that on the reformer. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Actually, I enjoy doing that on the reformer. It's great. Uh, it's, it is, it would be my number one favorite exercise for uh-huh. glute tendinopathy and abductor training because I think it's it's a way that because it's weight-bearing and uh-huh. we're moving in the plane, uh, the primary plane of action, uh, it tends to, it's yeah, it seems to just really get the best out of the, the synergists, if you like, we get a best balance. Mm-hmm. When you have to put off the floor strengthening, we seem to see a lot of this dominance in the TFL, but put your foot down on the floor. And then we seem to see more, um, you know, better recruitment in those glute right. heels. And the evidence has suggested that as well. But at home then, because they didn't have reformers and sliders at home, uh, they do that with a band. So it's just a a loop of band around the ankles. It's then just a single leg hip abduction Mm -hmm. into a semi-squat position and then a single leg abduction. But actually it's just as much work for the non-moving leg. Actually, that's where they usually fatigue most. Right. Uh, And so it's really important that they don't sort of hang, you know, on that side. So good control on that supporting leg uh, as they're practicing that frontal plane on the other side. Right. So you just want to be mindful of not, I call it like popping the hip. So, you know, people like kind of pop the hip out, like you're, you know, putting your hand on your hip and popping it out. Um, So I try to tell people like, please don't like do a hip pop, try and keep it, you know, pretty neutral as you go in and out. And I, every time I think of that exercise, even on the reformer, I don't know if you've ever seen that video. It was like Jean-Claude Van Damme with his feet on two moving trucks and they start <laughs> to go out to the side and he's down in like this, you know, <laughs> almost like straight across like split. Um, so, every time, <laughs> yeah, so you don't have to go down that far is what you're saying. No, no. no, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I always think of that when I... um think of that movement. I'm like, man, that is really something. Um, So let's talk about, again, how many sessions, right? Because every single country around the world has a different medical system. Some people might, I could say here in the United States, some people might get five visits. And I, I don't even you know, we have this sort of third party system that mm. someone there can, you send in your notes and they say, we'll give you five visits. And after five visits, you have to justify it. And they'll say, oh, we'll give you two. We'll give mm-hmm. you one and then you're done. Right. So there is a little bit of uncertainty around how many visits someone may be able to have. So, you know, 14 sessions of one-to-one physical therapy might not be able to happen. So, what what do we do? Sure. Well, that is the concern. And I guess concern from insurers, oh, well, this is going to be just way too expensive for us to, you know, fund 14 sessions of physio, which is what we did with the LEAP trial. So they did one session a week for the first two weeks, and then they did a six-week block where they had uh, two appointments a week. And that was mainly so that they could come in and do that 
heavy, slow loading uh, on the reformers. Uh, but yeah, so is that cost effective? And so in January this year, we just uh, published a paper looking at the cost effectiveness of the that education and exercise protocol, uh, comparing that against the cost of the cortisone injection and the wait and see uh, intervention. And what that showed is by looking at health-related quality of life and economic costs together, that the education exercise program was actually uh, the most cost-effective intervention compared to the other two. So we have to sort of look at it in terms of, you know, how it, um, the cost to the individual and the cost to um, society. But interestingly, that did show then that it is a cost-effective intervention. So we do now have that evidence to provide to insurers, but you know, it might take time to get some change in that. And so we need to also see, uh, are there ways that we can work with the current system and can we still get effects with uh, less treatments? Hmm. We don't have evidence for that at the moment, but actually Bill Benchin Bill Vincenzino and Rebecca Meller and I are currently working um, with Helen French's team in Ireland, and they're looking at the feasibility of providing the intervention in a light version, if you like. And so that's just six treatments. Okay. And so, yeah, it's going through a, a feasibility trial at the moment. And if that shows to be feasible, then it would be great to see that progress to a, a full RCT where we can test it uh, at that, you know, six, six treatments. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, it's just, gosh, insurance, right? Um, you know, in Australia, things are probably much different. Here in the United States, you just, you never know. Um, mm-hmm. Great. So now where can, let's say there's a health professional, a physical therapist, physician listening to this, where can they learn more about everything that we talked about today? Sure. Well, if they want to learn more about uh, the LEAP trial, that paper, the outcomes paper that was published in 2018, was published in the British Medical Journal. The first author was Rebecca Mellor, M-E-L-L-O-R. That is an open access paper. And so they can download the paper. Now, there's also a supplement. So if they really want the details and it's got details of the exercises and all the sets and reps and everything. Which we we love. Yeah, so that's in the supplement. So you can't just download the paper. Uh, so you have to actually download the supplement as well. Uh, so there's uh, that paper, which is probably you know a go-to. And then if you want to delve deeper into uh, gluteal tendinopathy and other treatments around the hip and pelvis for other conditions, uh, I've got a learning site at drallisongrimaldi.com. And so people can buy specific courses uh, mm-hmm. or I've also got a hip academy for those who love hips or or hate hips and want to get better at them. <laughs> then uh, there's a hip academy that has a whole heap of resources and we have live meetings, which is actually a part I love. We have people from all over the world joining together and talking about specific topics. So, so that's great. So we'd love to see you in in hip academy as well perfect and for those of you in the united states certainly if you're in new york city or really anywhere in the united states and you they want to see you live you're going to be at gnosis which is here in new york city uh, may 13th and 14th with two hip workshops so one on the 13th and one on the 14th so you can either you could go to the one on the 13th the one on the 14th or both Mm -hmm. So I just want to be very clear on that. You could do both. And I will also say 
you live in Australia. So it's not like you're here all the time. <laughs> no, that's right. And well, I haven't been traveling for a while with, right. with right. So um, it's, it's exciting uh, to come back and, and come back to New York. New York. I've only taught in New York once before, and that was a number of years ago now, mm -hmm. uh, pre-COVID. So yeah, I'm very excited to come back to New York. And on the, the first day, we'll be talking about um, anterior hip and groin pain. And on the second day, we'll be, you know, diving deep into lateral hip pain, but also buttock pain, mm -hmm. uh, which can often be, you know, challenging to diagnose and treat. So we'll be going into all the diagnosis and the management uh, for all those conditions. So anyone who wants to come to one or both days, we'd love to meet you. Yes. And, and we'll have all the information for this the podcast uh, website at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And we'll share it on social media as well. Um, and is all that information also on your website? Yes. Yes. Perfect. It's on the website. Perfect. Yeah. So you can go to uh, Dr. Allison, that's A-L-I-S-O-N, Grimaldi, Dot com. So one L, not two um, on the Allison. So I don't want people to get confused. Well, this was great. Um, and one more question before we wrap things up. And it's kind of a question I ask everyone. And knowing where you are now in your life and your career, what advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? Uh, I think the best advice to my young self uh, and to anyone in yeah in their early career is really invest in your continuing education. Uh, I've been a lifelong learner and I must have done 20 courses in my first two years after I graduated. Uh, but you just learn, you know, when you graduate, you're really just at the beginning of that learning journey and there's so much more to learn. So, you know, jump into practice, but continually, you know, uh, don't think you know everything when, when you um, graduate from uni. There's so much more to learn. And and even me, um, you know, plus 30 years down the track, uh, I'm still learning, you know, heaps every day. So, you know, use all the resources you have available to you to um, keep up to date and continuing your further education because, the, you know, the more the more you know, I suppose, the better outcomes you can have. And that just brings so much reward to this amazing profession. And, and we still see way too many people leaving the profession too early. So it is a wonderful profession, but you'll get more out of it when you put more into it. I think that's great advice. And I have to tell you, the older I get and the longer I practice, I think it's the less I know. Can that be <laughs> yeah, possible? Yeah. That's like when you do a PhD, you go into a PhD and you think you're going to answer all these questions and you're going to come out knowing everything. And all you come out with is a lot more questions. Questions. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, Allison, thank you so much for taking the time out coming on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to seeing you in New York City. Perfect. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great. And everyone, thanks so much for listening. Have a great couple of days and stay healthy, wealthy and smart. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to leave us your questions and comments at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com.